Well, a few years ago, this is the year 2018, right? And we are in October of 2018. It does not feel like it's October of 2018. One, I shouldn't be this old. And two, it shouldn't be that hot outside in the month of October. But a few years ago now, I made a terrible mistake. I know that you're all shocked and awed to hear that I made a terrible mistake. My wife especially is shocked to hear say that I made a terrible mistake. But I did four years ago in the year 2014. I made a horrible, horrible series of decisions that led me to running multiple half marathons. Yeah. Uh, I think it was perhaps an early onset. Uh, you know, I was closing, closing in. Uh, to turning 40. I, I have a, a, a beautiful wife who's a little bit younger than me. I saw her personal discipline. I saw her personal endurance, her, her, her passion, and the way she was challenged and overcame the obstacles, and she was conquering half marathons, and I foolishly thought in my head, I can do that. <coughs> yeah. No, I couldn't, but I tried. I've run a few half marathons in my life now. It's not something I ever plan on doing again. <laughs> because, quite frankly, by about mile four of the 13.1 mile total, I began to wonder what it was that I was doing, and I was wondering why I was doing it, because that's when the discomfort sets in. For me, it was around mile four. It began in my feet and the soles of my feet. It crept up into my heels and my ankles, my Achilles tendons and my calves, my knees, my quadriceps, my hamstrings, even my booty, my gluteus maximus was getting sore, my lower back, even my shoulders. I was in fantastic shape, Lee. I was running 13.1 miles. The discomfort turned to pain, and the miles kept increasing. But one thing that I learned in the midst of all of this is that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of this discomfort, there is the promise of an end. There is the promise of the finish line at 13.1 miles. And at the end, as you cross the finish line, there is, if I can say this, and maybe you'll believe me, that there is actually joy. Now, I'm not talking about that, uh, that hypothetical uh, runner's high, right? People talk about this runner's high that you get in the middle of a run, you get to this place of just satisfaction or it's effortless in running. I believe in Bigfoot more than I believe in the falsity of the runner's high. <laughs> what I'm talking about here, at the finish of the race, as you lay down in the grass, there's always sort of an after party where you can find bananas and donuts and things to eat and things to drink, and usually there's live music. You lay down in the grass, you take a load off, there's peace, there's satisfaction, there's rest, there's joy. Studying the book of Judges, preaching through the book of Judges, hearing sermons on the book of Judges is a little bit like running a half marathon. Because spending time in the book of Judges can be and is really discomforting. We do see so much unfaithfulness towards God here in this book. We, we see so much sin in this book. We see callous disregard of other people and individuals here in this book. We see so much truth about ourselves here in this book. The discomfort turns to pain as the chapters progress, but all along the way, like a finish line, 
all along the way, we see God and his character. All along the way in this book of Judges, we see God's grace-filled and graceful intercession for his people. And so in the book of Judges, this, this half-marathon endurance race, uh, as, the as the inconvenient truths of humanity are unveiled, the greatness and the glory of God shine there in the darkness. To enjoy the satisfaction and relief after a half marathon, you actually have to run the half marathon. You have to suffer through the discomfort and pain. And, and I'd say to even begin to understand the depths of the Holy Trinity's grace and mercy, we have to first see the truth of who we are. And Judges helps us to see who we are. Today, we, we come to what is roughly the halfway point of the main section of the book of Judges, what is often referred to as the book of deliverers. From this point forward, folks, uh, from this point forward, things decline quickly, starting here in chapter 8 and chapter 9 with Gideon and his legacy. For the first time in the book of Judges, the rejection of Yahweh and the turn to idolatry occurs within the lifetime of the human agent of deliverance created or raised up by God, the judge. For the first time in the book of Judges here with Gideon and his legacy, the judge himself does what is right in his own eyes and in that does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it gets worse over the next several weeks. There's a plug for you. My hope and my prayer for these next several weeks as we conclude the book of Judges is that as we encounter the deepening darkness, that the light of Jesus will shine all the more. Today we see and we hear three things. The first thing that we see and we hear is that Gideon and his legacy show to us the need to remember God's grace well and rightly. This passage of chapter 8 and chapter 9, the book of Judges, this passage shows us God's persistent and holy grace. And this passage, by showing us Gideon and revealing through Gideon our need, we are pointed towards Jesus, who is the anti-Gideon. Let's talk about Gideon a little bit. Just We remember that the entire story of Gideon, beginning in chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, the, the entire story of Gideon is really one of transformation. Remember, we found Gideon in the middle of chapter 6 hanging out in a wine press. He was there not because he was crushing grapes to turn into wine, but because he was a coward and he was hiding from the Midianites to thresh out his wheat. And we've seen the transformation of Gideon from this coward hiding through God's grace, God's mercy, God's calling, God's commissioning, God's equipping for purpose. Gideon became a courageous and capable leader. He, he was used by God to deliver the Israelites from the hands of of the Midianites, but chapter 8 reveals a very different transformation. The first transformation of Gideon is, is a positive one, God doing his work. The second transformation is a very negative one. Gideon, who was once a coward, became a courageous and capable leader, is now in chapter 8 a brutal, vengeance-minded, self-interested ruler who acts like a king. Gideon and his band of 300 men crossed the Jordan River to pursue the Midianites. And they came to two Israelite towns, Succoth and Penuel, and being exhausted and worn out, they asked for provisions. In both the towns, they met rejection. 
The leaders of Succoth and Penuel said, no, we're not going to give you anything until you show us the Midianite kings. Probably they were afraid that Gideon would fail, and in his failure, then they would be open to Midianite reprisal because they they had helped the enemy. And Gideon doesn't just shrug this off. Rather, Gideon responds to their rejection with threats. He says to the leaders of Succoth, when I return, I will drag you out and I will whip you with brambles and thorns. And he says to Penuel, the leaders of Penuel, when I return, I will tear down your tower, your defenses. Why? You see, his quest is no longer about delivering the people of Israel. Now it's about his ego. Now it's about his pride. And when his ego is bruised, he attacks those who bruised the ego, even if they are fellow Israelites. He does capture the two Midianite kings he was pursuing. He does return to Succoth and Penuel. He does beat the elders of Succoth with thorns and briars. He does break down the tower of Penuel, and then he goes one step further. He kills the men of that city, treating fellow Israelites with brutal vengeance. And then, having discovered that these two captured Midianite kings are the ones responsible for the murder, the death of his brothers... He glibly invokes the name of Yahweh as he announces that he, Gideon, will kill them. And he does. This man, raised up by Yahweh, given victory by Yahweh, is transforming into a brutal, vengeance-minded, self-interested ruler who acts like a king. He returned across the Jordan River back into the sort of the mainland of the Israel proper, and there, because of his victory... The men of Israel come to him in chapter 8, verse 22, and they say to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They want to make him king. Why? Because they say, you have won us victory over Midian. Do you remember what God said to Gideon when he reduced his forces from 32,000 to 300? In chapter 7, verse 2, he said to Gideon, you have too many men because if I give Midian into your hands, Gideon, Israel will think you won the victory. And they'll be convinced of their own greatness. They'll be convinced of their own independency. They'll be convinced of their own self-sufficiency. And that's exactly what happened. Even with the small band of 300, the people of Israel have forgotten God. They've become thoughtless toward Yahweh. They are now directly contradicting the revealed word of God, the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, which laid out how to get a king. Gideon's offered the position of king. You notice that he does not correct the Israelites saying, you won the victory. Gideon does, is happy to take, happy to take that credit. And while he refuses the title of king, he begins to act like a king. Actions speak louder than words. And in uh, Judges chapter 8, having forgotten Yahweh, having forgotten the grace of God, he now strikes out to determine for himself to be his own king, to lead, to rule over himself, and thus over Israel. In verses 24 through 32, Gideon does a number of things That are kingly things to do. First, he demands a financial reward from his soldiers. He says to his soldiers, those spoils that you have taken, give me a golden earring. He is demanding tribute paid to him as a superior would do to an inferior soldier. He's doing something that a king would do. 
and his soldiers recognize it, and his soldiers pay it. Gideon builds what amounts to be a royal treasury. He keeps the ornaments that had been hung around the necks of the Midianite camels. He takes the 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 45 pounds of gold, by the way. He keeps the crescent ornaments, the pendants, and even the purple garments of the kings of Midian, a royal, kingly treasury. Even further, Gideon established his own capital. He ruled from his own home in Ophrah. He established what amounts to a royal harem. He had many wives and concubines, and he had 70 sons. The 71st son, he even named Abimelech, Abimelech, which means my father is king. And finally, acting like a king, Gideon established a shrine for worship. Whatever his intentions may have been, he created an idol for Israel. In chapter 8, verse 27, Gideon made an ephod of it, of the gold, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What is happening? What has happened to this man? How is it that Gideon, a man who had received so much grace in the call and the commission of God, had been clothed with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, how is it that this man goes so far off the rails and he takes Israel with him? I think the answer is simply this. Gideon exalted himself as he forgot God, as he was thoughtless toward Yahweh. In the midst of his success, Gideon was thoughtless toward Yahweh, thinking that he was the reason for his success. And pastor and preacher, author Tim Keller remarks, Gideon himself has forgotten the lesson of the 300. He feels he ought to receive admiration and honor for what he has done. And if, he's, if he is to receive admiration and honor for what he has done, then we can understand why he would respond out of a bruised ego at the hands of rejection at Succoth and Penuel. And we can begin to understand if he thought he deserved it, why he would demand gold, why he would do all of these things that are kingly actions, because he was thoughtless. He was forgetful of Yahweh and what Yahweh had done for him personally and for the nation of Israel corporately. This thoughtlessness really is a hallmark of Israel in the book of Judges. But here, for the first time, it's a problem for the judge himself. This is not amnesia. He did not get a crack in the head. This is not a, a lack or loss of knowledge. Forgetfulness can be, as it so often is, a lack of awareness. It can be a lack of consciousness. It can be thoughtlessness. Simply put, Gideon, like all of Israel, stopped paying attention to Yahweh, their covenant God. That's the way the narrator here in Judges chapter 8 summarizes his report in verse 34. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And after Gideon died, it gets worse. After Gideon dies, the forgetful thoughtlessness continued on. In Gideon's legacy, his son Abimelech, Abimelech led to greater chaos and greater Violence. Chapter 9 records what Gideon's legacy looks like. 
It looks like a son who uh, it becomes an illegitimate king and murders 69 of his 70 brothers. It looks like a civil, civil war between Shechem and the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech. And it looks like further degradation of the people of Israel. Gideon's transformation here came as he neglected God, as he neglected the things of God, as he was thoughtless towards God, as he exalted himself, as he sought his own self-determination, as he wills to rule himself, as he wills to create himself, to define himself. 21st century sociologist Philip Reeve once said that men always seek, and by men he meant men and women, humanity always seeks self-creation but that is the way that leads to destruction. In effect, Gideon gives God the Heisman pose stiff arm, right? He says to God, thanks, but I've got this, bro. And then he puts himself back upon the throne of his life. I fear that this is an all too natural tendency for us humans. We want to take the credit where it's not due us. We want to rule where we ought to be ruled we want independence when what we need is dependence. And so having been taken to new heights by God, Gideon convinced himself that he was a self-made man. Taking his eyes off of God, Gideon becomes thoughtless toward him. And as his eyes descend to himself, so he descends and he takes Israel with him. This is a heartbreaking story. Gideon, by the way, shows up in Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 12 with the Hall of Fame, the Faith Hall of Fame. At one point in his life, he was faithful, responding to God's call. And at the end of his life, he and his legacy show us the need to remember God's grace well and rightly. And speaking of God, where is God in all of this? Right? Where is God in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of the book of Judges? Where is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel? Well, in Judges chapter 8 and 9, we actually find God relatively silent. He doesn't really speak. In the first seven chapters of the book of Judges, there were times in which God audibly and verbally broke into his creation to speak directly with those he had called and raised up. In fact, he's talked talk to Gideon. But in chapters 8 and chapters 9, Yahweh... It's almost as if Yahweh responds to Gideon or responds to Israel and their thoughtlessness toward him by saying, have it your way. And so leaves them to their own devices. And yet we notice, if we read carefully this, this longer passage, even while Yahweh remains silent, he continues to act in at least three ways. First, even while Gideon and the people forgot him, Yahweh continues to pour out his grace. The end of chapter 8, we read this, that even in the midst of their idolatry, in the midst of their thoughtlessness, and their, their callous disregard for one another, Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. In his steadfast love for the people of God, Yahweh gave the land peace. They didn't deserve it. Gideon was leading them off into idolatry with huge smiles on their faces, and yet God gave them peace. You talk about grace, a, an act of unmerited favor. Talk about a gift. 
The second way that we see God at work, God's grace and evidence here, is that when, when Abimelech or Abimelech became an illegitimate king, Yahweh cut his reign short. Gideon led the people for 40 years. Abimelech read, led for three. God intervened by sending an injurious spirit to break up the unity between Abimelech and his financial backers. God actively worked to cause the disintegration of this callous and illegitimate power block. And in this, in the downfall of both Shechem and its leaders and Abimelech, we're told by the narrator of the events in chapter 9 that God was at work bringing his justice to bear, and that is grace. And finally... The era of Gideon and Abimelech ends with even more grace. The, the habit and the pattern in the book of Judges is that people sin, they're oppressed, they cry out to God, God responds. Here, Abimelech dies, Abimelech is killed, the people never say a word to crying out to God, and yet after Abimelech in chapter 10, there arose to save Israel. Save Israel from who? Themselves? Tola, the son of Puah. And after him arose Jair, the Gileadite. Without the people ever crying out, without the people seeking it, God gave to them, out of his grace, Tola and Jair, who judged for a combined 45 years. We heard this morning as we prayed, God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. That's the God you find in Judges chapter 8 and 9. Even in his silence, God pouring out his grace upon his thoughtless people. But where is Jesus? Where's Jesus here? Sometimes we see Jesus most clearly not by comparison, but by contrast. So Jesus is the anti-Gideon, right? There's like bizarro Superman, I didn't want to call Jesus Bizarro Gideon, so I called him Anti-Gideon. In the incarnation, the Son was perfectly aware and perfectly conscious of the Father at all times. Unlike Gideon and unlike humanity, this fully human and fully God, Jesus, was always thoughtful of the Father. And in several passages from the gospel, according to St. John, we hear about Jesus and his intimate connection with the Father, his gaze always upon him. We heard it this morning in John chapter 14. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because they're connected. Jesus in John chapter 5, he says, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Why? Because he's intimately connected, thoughtful. In John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given himself, has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is important because we humans in our natural and sinful selves are more like Gideon than we are like Jesus. And more to the point, in being more like Gideon, we need to be made different by a Savior who is external from ourselves because we can't save ourselves. We need to be like Jesus, and in fact, that is why Jesus came. 
the great defender of the faith, St. Athanasius, a significant voice in the framing and the forming of the Nicene Creed, once stated, he became what we are that he might make us what he is. Since sinful humanity needs Jesus to be saved, and sinful humanity needs Jesus to continue in that salvation, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, to be justified, and we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be sanctified. Justification is a wonderful, churchy word, a theological word that refers to the standing of a believer in Jesus before God on account of faith in Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is accounted as a believer's own. Jesus' death upon the cross is uh, substituted for the, the believer's own. And so his perfect righteousness is imputed, given to. Folks, sometimes there's a tendency to treat Jesus as fire insurance, to limit Jesus' work to simply this, justification. I'm guilty of that in my younger years. I thought of faith in Jesus as a ticket to a movie, so to speak. After I had that ticket in my hand, I could live the way I wanted to live. Everything else was up to me, but I would get in. It's essentially what Gideon did, isn't it? After his call, after his commission, after the reception of grace, what Gideon didn't do is abide in God. What we need to do is abide in Jesus. That's sanctification. Sanctification, another wonderful churchy word, a theologically rich word that refers to transformation. Having been justified, having been adopted by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, we believers are then to look more and more like Jesus. Paul, in fact, St. Paul in the eighth chapter of his letter to the Romans writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's sanctification. That's abiding in Christ. That's what Gideon didn't do, and that is what believers in Jesus are called to do, remembering God's grace rightly and well. Simply put, there is never a time in the Christian life when it is ever appropriate to say to God with the Heisman pose, thanks, but I got it from here. Having received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we're called to remain there in needful dependence of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We never grow out of the gospel. We only grow in the gospel. And rather than thoughtlessness toward God, rather than forgetfulness toward God, because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, believers in Him are to be thoughtful toward Him with eyes rightly focused upward. Wonderful words, but how is that actually going to be done? I'm glad that you asked. The Holy Spirit is given to all who believe in Jesus for the amazing work of transformation. The amazing work of the transformation of the being, the confirmation of the person into the image of the Son. If we put it in terms that, uh, that are relevant to the topic of today, the Spirit helps believers be thoughtful of God to remember His grace rightly and well. In fact, in John chapter 14, just a few verses after our reading this morning, Jesus says this, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
And can it be then that the Holy Spirit does a whole lot of things in our lives through a whole lot of things in our lives so that rather than be like Gideon, we are like Jesus, rightfully remembering God's grace and his mercy and doing it well. Why? Because we're great? No, because the Holy Spirit is at work within us. The Holy Spirit uses so many different means to do this work. The scriptures tell us that he might even use trials and tribulations. He might use other people to help us remember God's grace rightly and well, to keep us God thoughtful. He might use our service to the church and to one another. There's these things called personal disciplines that that keep us connected to God that the Holy Spirit uses, such as reading of the Word and studying of the Word, such as prayer personal disciplines such as meditation and perhaps the most difficult of all, silence and fasting. Using those things in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us be thoughtful towards God, to be like Jesus, conformed to his image. And then there are corporate disciplines. We recognize that it wasn't just Gideon who didn't think well of God. It was Israel as a body that was thoughtless. And so as a church, as a body of Jesus Christ, what are the corporate disciplines that the Holy Spirit uses to help us be thoughtful towards God with dependence upon Him, rightly remembering? Well, we're in one right now, corporate worship. All of our liturgy is geared to helping us aim at God, fix our eyes upon God, and hear and rehearse the actions of God on our behalf. We hear the reading of the word. We hear the preaching of the word. Because in that, we are led by the Holy Spirit to rightly remember the grace of God. And together, we respond with adoration and praise. Together, we offer our prayers. And together, we come to celebrate the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. There, the Holy Spirit at work to stir up faith, to create faith, to strengthen faith, to form us into the image of Jesus that we might remember God's grace well and rightly. That really is, I think, the overriding theme of chapters 8 and 9. Gideon, in a negative example, shows us what it looks like to not remember well. Callous indifference, brutal vengeance, ego Jesus shows us what it looks like to know God and to be thoughtful towards God. And in the midst of this, God shows us his persistent and his holy grace. God and his persistent and holy grace provides all that we need in Jesus that we might be thoughtful of him and depend upon him for life. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we give you thanks. You are truth, and your word is true. We praise you and we give you thanks for Jesus, the one who can show us and be for us righteousness. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and do his work within us to conform us to the very image of Christ that we may know, remember, rightly and well, your grace. Come and do this for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.